Hello, Wild Wanderers. I hope you all had a safe and happy Thanksgiving. In our last episode, I told you about the naturalist Adolf Murray and how his work on coyote ecology in Yellowstone and the relationship between wolves and doll sheep at Mount McKinley had a profound impact on how we manage wildlife, especially predators in our national parks. In this episode, I want to go into more depth about one of those animals, the gray wolf. I want to talk about wolves in a general sense, but I also want to talk about the tumultuous history of wolves in America. And most importantly, I want to tell you about what we've learned about their impact through both their elimination and their reintroduction into Yellowstone National Park, about the role these magnificent apex predators play in the ecosystem. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. The gray wolf, also called the timber wolf, is a canine, Latin name Canis lupus. They're in the same family as foxes, coyotes, and yes, even domestic dogs like pugs and chihuahuas are descended from the mighty wolf, although 130,000 years or so of selective breeding have ensured only a passing resemblance. But the gray wolf is the largest wild canine. Males average close to 90 pounds, but can get up to 130 in the more northerly part of their range. Female gray wolves average around 80 pounds. Compare that to the largest coyotes, which weigh around 50 pounds. Wolves are also significantly taller than their coyote cousins, two and a half feet at the shoulder versus the coyote's 18 inches. Now, even though they're called gray wolves, they're not necessarily gray. Their fur can range from nearly pure white to nearly pure black, along with gray, brown, or even reddish colors. They have relatively narrow chests, which help them push through soft, deep snow, and large feet, about the size of your hand, which helps distribute their weight to walk on top of more solid snow. They also have long legs and dense muscles, which makes them excellent runners. At a full sprint, a gray wolf can reach speeds up to 38 miles an hour. However, wolves are the ultra-marathoners of the predator world. They're less likely to sprint than they are to engage in a slower but much longer chase at around 5 miles an hour, running their prey to exhaustion before moving in for the kill. Once caught, the wolves will quickly kill their prey with a mouthful of sharp teeth and a bite force that exceeds 1,000 pounds per square inch. They have 42 teeth, including what are known as carnassial teeth. Carnassial teeth are unique to predators. Think knife-like molars that are used to cut through meat and bone. Now, wolves are social animals. Like coyotes, the pack is a family unit, typically consisting of the alpha, or breeding male and female, and their adult offspring. This idea that the alpha pair are the most aggressive is really a misconception. Occasionally, non-family members may be accepted into the pack, but those occasions are relatively rare. Average size of a wolf pack in North America is eight. Offspring may stay with the pack anywhere from 10 months up to four or five years. Competition for food and the onset of sexual maturity, along with just individual personality traits, are triggers for dispersal. In addition to being social, wolves are highly territorial, much more so than coyotes. 
They'll generally establish territories far larger than what they require to survive, but that assures a steady supply of prey. Territory size depends largely on the amount of prey available and the age of the pack's pups. It tends to increase in size if the prey population is low, or when the pups reach the age of six months, when they have the same nutritional needs as adults. The core of their territory averages about 14 square miles, and that's where they spend about half of their time. But wolf packs travel almost constantly in search of prey, usually covering about 9% of their territory, or about 16 square miles every day. Prey density is usually higher in the territory's surrounding areas, but wolves tend to avoid hunting on the fringes of their range unless they get desperate because of the possibility of encounters with neighboring packs, which can prove to be fatal. Wolves communicate with each other in a variety of ways, touch, smell, taste, and body language. Aggressive or self-assertive wolves are characterized by their slow and deliberate movements, high body posture, raised hackles, while submissive ones carry their bodies low, lower their ears and tail, and roll on their backs to show submission. But just like coyotes, wolves are known for howling. And also like coyotes, the moon has not one single thing to do with wolves howling. Wolves howl to assemble the pack before and after hunts, pass on an alarm call from the den, locate each other during storms or when they're crossing unfamiliar territory, or to otherwise communicate across long distances. And sometimes they may howl just for the pure joy of it. Other vocalizations include growls, barks, and whines. Wolves don't bark as loudly or continuously as domestic dogs, but they may bark a few times and then retreat from a perceived danger. Now, back to long chases and sharp teeth, these make a lot of sense for wolves. Their main prey are large herbivores like bison, elk, moose, bighorn sheep, deer, and caribou, which they hunt and kill as a pack. Hunting big game, especially ones that sport hooves and large antlers, is dangerous business. Wolves are frequently injured or even killed by the prey they're trying to take down, which is probably why the average lifespan of a wild wolf is just six to eight years. So wearing down those big animals before getting close enough for them to hurt you just makes good sense. Individual wolves will eat smaller prey if they can catch it. If you listened to the last episode, you might recall that Adolf Murie was the first to document that wolves will eat mice. And the Voyager's Wolf Project, a collaboration between the University of Minnesota and Voyager's National Park, which tracks and studies wolves in northern Minnesota, documented a specific wolf that had become particularly skilled at hunting beaver. If you've ever looked at the nutritional information on any food packaging, you know that it's based on a 2,000-calorie diet, the average amount we humans need to be healthy. Just for minimum maintenance, the average wolf requires about 3.7 pounds of meat per day, and a growing young wolf or reproductive female may require more than that. It's been estimated that wolves consume about 10 pounds of meat per day. But putting that into an average really doesn't represent the feeding habit of wolves. The thing is, wolves don't eat every day. Instead, they live what you might call a feast or famine lifestyle, often going several days without a meal and then gorging themselves when a kill is made. There's a myth that wolves will kill just for fun, but this is just a myth. 
Now, it's true that wolves sometimes kill more than they can possibly eat, but this usually happens when prey has been scarce. The excess is cached so the wolves can return to it later. They aren't killing for fun, they're just trying to make sure they have some food in the near future, just in case. It's the wolf version of grocery shopping. One common way to express the amount of prey wolves kill is in deer equivalent. Basically, figuring out the total mass of all animals consumed and figuring out what that would equal in just deer. Hunters often complain that wolves reduce deer or elk populations, leaving less for hunters, which I always find a bit ironic. We don't want wolves killing elk because we want to kill those elk. But there are a few things wrong with this argument. First of all, while wolves may attack healthy adult prey, they prefer animals that are older or sick or injured, which, again, makes good sense from a safety perspective. An injured animal is just easier prey. And going back to the last episode, as Olaf's Murray pointed out, this strengthens the herd by leaving only the strongest to breed. It's Darwin's survival of the fittest. Humans prefer to kill the largest animals, which actually weakens the herd. Secondly, let's put deer equivalent into perspective. The average wolf consumes 15 to 19 deer equivalent per year. In 2013, there were an estimated 2,200 wolves in the state of Minnesota. That means that Minnesota wolves consumed, at most, around 42,000 deer equivalent. And remember that that's not all deer, but would include other animals like moose and elk. The number of deer killed by hunters during the 2013 firearm season in Minnesota was just under 129,000. And that's just firearms. It doesn't include bow hunting or the several thousand deer killed by automobile collisions. So the deer equivalent of wolf predation was less than a third as many as the number of deer alone killed by humans. Another source of animosity in regard to wolves is the claim that they kill livestock. I mentioned this quote in episode 4 about coyotes, but it bears repeating here. In the book of Wolves and Men, the author Barry Lopez wrote, We know little about wolves, but a great deal about what we believe wolves to be. Many wolves live in areas where there are livestock and rarely, if ever, kill them. But data on wolf predation on livestock can be hard to interpret. I'll give you an example. In 2014, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service confirmed 136 cattle and 114 sheep killed by wolves in the states of Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. Now, this number likely underestimates the true number of livestock killed by wolves because it only counts confirmed wolf kills and doesn't include livestock that went missing and were not found or deaths that were not reported or not confirmed to be the result of wolves. On the other end of the spectrum, the National Agricultural Statistics Service reported 2,835 cattle and 453 sheep killed by wolves in the same region in the same year. Now those numbers are likely inflated because it's based on a self-reported survey of livestock producers and does not include verification of the kills. So the truth lies somewhere in between. What we can say with some degree of confidence is that wolf predation on cattle and sheep accounts for less than 1% of the annual gross income from industry-wide livestock operations in the northern Rocky Mountains, although some producers are at more risk than others. The good news is that studies have shown there are non-lethal methods that can reduce the risk of livestock losses to wolves. 
A seven-year study of sheep grazing operations in the Sawtooth Mountains of Idaho used a number of non-lethal techniques like guard dogs or lights or noise hazing to deter wolf predation and compared it to another area where they didn't use any protective measures. They found that losses to wolves in the protected area amounted to just 0.02% of the total number of sheep, three and a half times lower than in the non-protected area. This suggests that it's possible for wolves and livestock operations to coexist with a minimum of conflict if precautions are taken. Wolf prejudice runs deep, though. For example, in 2019, the Michigan Department of Natural Resources admitted that they exaggerated accounts of wolf predation and behavior so they could justify killing a wolf pack that in 2016 had killed cattle on a prominent Upper Peninsula ranch. Ironically, wolves that attack livestock are more likely to be lone wolves, those individual animals not part of a pack that are in search of a mate and territory of their own. Livestock are much easier prey for a lone animal. Killing wolves, especially entire packs, only makes more space available for a wolf that wants to start its own pack, and it may actually increase wolf predation on livestock. So how did we get here? Where did all this wolf hate come from? When the first Europeans arrived in North America, there were approximately two million gray wolves. They ranged north to the southern edge of Greenland, south down through Mexico, and west to the Pacific Ocean, with the exception of the southeastern United States, which was the territory of their cousins, the Red Wolf. Wolves featured prominently in the mythology of nearly every Native American tribe. They were often portrayed as ferocious warriors or thieving spirits. In most native cultures, wolf is considered a medicine being and associated with courage, strength, loyalty, and success at hunting. In some Native American myths, it was wolves that transformed into men. Settlers arriving from Europe were already familiar with wolves and had their own, much less positive opinion of them. Think about how wolves are portrayed in these stories. Little Red Riding Hood, which is based on a French fairy tale dating back to the 1600s. The Three Little Pigs, which first appeared in print in the 1800s, but is likely based on a much older tale. Any of Aesop's fables where wolves are generally either villains or tyrants, and even the biblical reference of a wolf in sheep's clothing is equating the wolf to a false prophet. So it didn't take long for people to begin waging war on the wolves of North America. As settlers in the southwest depleted bison, elk, deer, and moose populations, the wolves' natural prey, the wolves turned more and more to picking off livestock. Naturally, they were seen as pests that posed a threat to the continued safety and prosperity of the American people, and the U.S. government instituted a nationwide policy of wolf control. Surprisingly, even some notable naturalists were staunchly anti-wolf. Theodore Roosevelt, widely known for his environmental activism and for establishing the first national park, called the wolf the beast of waste and destruction and called for its eradication. Celebrated painter and naturalist John James Audubon believed wolves ought to be eradicated for the threat they posed to valuable livestock. Bounty programs that were initiated in the mid-1800s continued as late as 1965, offering $20 to $50 per wolf. And so wolves were trapped, shot, dug from their dens, and hunted with dogs. A very common technique was to set out strychnine-laced carcasses, a practice that also killed eagles, ravens, foxes, bears, and any other animal that fed on the tainted carrion. 
And strychnine is not a peaceful, painless death. It causes muscle cramping and seizures. Death from strychnine poisoning is a result of respiratory failure, cardiac arrest, brain damage, or organ failure. But most people at the time believed that they served God in the United States by ridding the countryside of such vermin. In the late 1800s, wealthy livestock owners increased both their demand for more grazing land and their influence over policymakers in Washington, D.C. In 1885, the federal government established the U.S. Bureau of Biological Survey, chartered to research insects and birds. But the livestock lobby quickly diverted the Bureau's attention to wolves. Stock owners complained that their land was, quote, infested with wolves, calling them breeding grounds. Now, Technically, they weren't wrong. I mean, since it was wolf territory, it was a breeding ground for wolves, and they were there first. But stock owners demanded the federal government secure their land for livestock. In 1906, the U.S. Forest Service gave in to the stock owners' demands and enlisted the help of the Bureau of Biological Survey to clear cattle ranges of gray wolves. In other words, instead of studying birds and insects as intended, the Biological Survey became the government's wolf extermination unit. And if you listened to the last episode, you might recall that it was in the middle of this, the mid-1930s and 1940s, that Adolf Murray completed his landmark studies on the coyotes of Yellowstone and the wolves of Mount McKinley. By 1960, wolves were eliminated from 47 of the lower 48 states. The wolf is the only species to be deliberately driven to the brink of extinction by humans, although I would say that coyotes were only spared a similar fate by virtue of being adaptable and not because of a lack of trying. Now, the wolves of Yellowstone National Park are probably the most studied and most well-known wild wolves in the world. But before we get to them, I want to talk about wolves in some other regions of the United States. A much greater number of wolves live in the northern Great Lakes region, the states of Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan. There's currently around 4,500 wolves that call this region home. In the early 1800s, there were between three and 5,000 wolves in Wisconsin. In 1865, Wisconsin enacted a bounty on wolves, and by 1950, less than 50 remained. In 1957, the bounty was repealed and they were listed as protected, but by 1960, they were considered extinct in the state. In the mid-70s, they started to recolonize along the Minnesota border. Current populations in Wisconsin are estimated at right around 1,000. Michigan wolves have a similar story. By 1935, they were absent from the Lower Peninsula, and by the time Michigan repealed its bounty in 1960, they were virtually gone from the Upper Peninsula, too. The last known pups had been born in the 1950s. It seems like a bit of an empty gesture when they were afforded full protection by the Michigan legislature in 1965, because by the time the Endangered Species Act was passed in 1973, there were only six wolves remaining in Michigan's Upper Peninsula and a small isolated population on Isle Royale. In 1974, the Michigan Department of Natural Resources attempted to relocate four adult wolves to the Upper Peninsula, but all were killed by people within eight months, and the decision was made to just let repopulation occur naturally. And thankfully it did. Natural emigration of wolves from Minnesota, Ontario, and Wisconsin to the Upper Peninsula was first documented in the early 80s. As recently as 2019, the population was estimated at over 600 wolves in 139 packs, 
and there's evidence to suggest they may be moving back to the lower peninsula. Minnesota is the only state in the lower 48 to have always maintained a viable population of wolves, dropping to its lowest level of around 350 in the 1950s, despite having a bounty until 1965. Even after the bounty ended, wolves in Minnesota could still be hunted and trapped until the passage of the Endangered Species Act in 1973. At that time, the population was estimated to be between 1,000 and 1,200 individuals. Currently, there's an estimated 3,000 wolves in Minnesota. The other primary region for wolves in the lower 48 states is the northern Rocky Mountains, primarily Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. In terms of the elimination of wolves, timelines for Montana and Idaho are nearly identical. In Montana, when the first bounty was enacted in 1884, 5,500 wolf pelts were turned in. The last wolf in Idaho was killed in 1930, and that same year breeding populations were declared extinct in Montana. Canadian wolves began to recolonize Montana's Glacier National Park in 1979, and there are currently about 900 wolves in the state. Idaho, on the other hand, was more proactive and followed the lead of Yellowstone National Park, reintroducing wolves into wilderness areas around the same time that wolves were reintroduced into the park. Idaho released 15 wolves in 1995 and another 20 in 1996. There's currently estimated to be over 800 wolves in Idaho. So with all these other wolves running around, why are the Yellowstone wolves so well known? Well, that's easy. Even though it's huge, almost 3,500 square miles, Yellowstone gives us a relatively finite space in which to observe wolves. They're more visible to the general public. Yellowstone also allows us to see the ecological impacts of both the elimination of wolves and their reintroduction. So let's quickly review the history of Yellowstone National Park. Established in 1872, Yellowstone was the first national park. At that time, wolf populations were already declining, and establishing a national park did nothing to protect them or any other animal. In the early years of the park, visitors, hunters, and administrators were free to kill any animal they came across. And of course, with a bounty on wolves, they were at higher risk, just naturally. In 1883, the hunting of most park animals was prohibited, but this applied to game animals and not wolves, coyotes, bears, mountain lions, or other predators. The last wolf in Yellowstone was killed in 1926. It didn't take long for the ecological impacts of wolf removal to become apparent. To begin with, in the absence of wolves, coyote populations increased, which had a significant impact on pronghorn antelope. But it was the elk that caused the most profound changes to the ecosystem. Elk populations began to rise, and their grazing habits started having significant impacts on the landscape. Scientists visiting in 1929, just three years after the last wolf was killed in the park, and again in 1933 reported, quote, The range was in deplorable condition when we first saw it, and its deterioration has been progressing steadily since then, unquote. Biologists were already worried about eroding land and plants dying off. In the absence of their main predator, elk were not just multiplying inside the park, they had no fear of being out in the open. They would linger along the streams and rivers, so species like aspen, willow, and cottonwood, which grow in those areas, suffered from overgrazing. The Park Service started trapping and moving the elk, and when that proved not to be effective, just killing them outright. 
Elk control prevented further degradation of the range, but it didn't do anything to make it better. From time to time, someone would suggest bringing wolves back to Yellowstone to help control the elk population, but Yellowstone's managers weren't really eager to bring back the wolves after they had just spent so much time trying to get rid of them. And so they just kept doing what they were doing for the next 30 years or so, until in the late 1960s, local hunters began to complain to their congressmen that there were too few elk. The congressman responded by threatening to stop funding Yellowstone, so killing elk was given up as a control method, which, of course, allowed elk populations to rise again. And, as you would expect, as elk populations rose, the quality of the range decreased, and that had an impact on a lot of other species in the park, most notably beaver, which, lacking adequate forage because the elk ate it all, pretty much disappeared from Yellowstone. In 1994, the elk population in Yellowstone National Park was over 19,000. The reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone was a long time in the making. After Adolf Murray's studies in the 1930s and 40s, other naturalists began to make similar suggestions. In 1944, naturalist Aldo Leopold wrote, Why in the necessary process of extirpating wolves from livestock ranges of Wyoming and Montana were not some of the uninjured animals used to restock Yellowstone? Although note, even he refers to the elimination of wolves from livestock ranges as necessary. In the 1960s, cultural and scientific understanding of ecosystems was starting to change, and so were attitudes towards the wolf and other large predators. The concept of keystone species emerged, and with it the recognition that large predators, like the wolf, play an important part of a healthy and intact ecosystem. Noted Canadian wildlife biologist Douglas Pimlot was calling for the restoration of wolves into the northern Rocky Mountains, and in 1970, American wolf expert David Meck published his book, The Wolf, The Ecology and Behavior of an Endangered Species, an enlightening study of the wolf and its impact on its environment. The passage of the Endangered Species Act in 1973 at long last provided both protection for the gray wolf and a legal basis for its reintroduction into the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, since the stated purpose of the Endangered Species Act is to protect not just the species themselves, but also the ecosystems on which they depend. Once the Endangered Species Act was passed, things began to move forward, although at the speed you might expect from the federal government. A mere seven years after the passage of the act in 1980, the first Northern Rocky Mountain Wolf Recovery Plan was completed, and it only took another seven years to revise the plan. It took another four years before Congress directed the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to develop an environmental impact statement. Three years after that, in 1994, for those keeping score at home, the final environmental impact statement was published. And in 1995, just 22 years after passage of the Endangered Species Act, and after a 69-year absence, wolves were at last returned to Yellowstone National Park. In January 1995, U.S. and Canadian wildlife officials captured 14 wolves from multiple packs east of Jasper National Park near Hinton, Alberta, Canada. The wolves ranged in size from 72 to 130 pounds and in age from 9 months up to 5 years. They included wolves known to have fed on bison since they would encounter bison in the park. Each wolf was radio collared and placed in one of three temporary pens in the northeastern section of Yellowstone. Approximately twice a week they were fed elk, deer, moose, or bison that had died in the park 
and human contact was minimized. In March of 1995, the pens were opened and the first 14 wolves were loose in Yellowstone. In January 1996, 17 more wolves were brought to Yellowstone and the process was repeated in another section of the park. The plan was for five consecutive years of releases, but the wolves proved to be so successful that no other releases were required. Predictably, with abundant space and food, the wolf population in Yellowstone rose rapidly, peaking between 2003 and 2007 at 174 individuals in 13 to 14 packs before it decreased again. Since 2009, the wolf population has stabilized and generally hovers around 100 wolves in 10 to 11 packs. Scientists have been studying the impact of wolf reintroduction on the Yellowstone ecosystem since they were returned. As the wolf population in the park has grown, the elk population, as would be expected, has declined. The decline in elk led to changes in plant life, most specifically those willows, cottonwoods, and aspens along the fringes of heavily timbered areas. And this is not just due to a decrease in numbers, but to a change in elk behavior. Instead of lingering along the streams and browsing the streamside vegetation, elk spend much less time in those areas since it leaves them vulnerable to predation. Furthermore, although wolf kills are directly attributable to declines in elk numbers, research has shown that the constant presence of wolves have pushed elk into less favorable habitats, raising their stress level and lowering their nutrition and overall birth rate. Since wolf packs will claim kills made by mountain lions, this has driven the big cats out of the valleys where they ventured in the wolves' absence and back to their more traditional mountainside territory. Similarly, wolves compete with and sometimes even prey on coyotes. Without wolves, coyotes had become the apex predator in Yellowstone. Two years after reintroduction, the coyote population in the park was reduced by half. Carcasses in the open no longer attracted coyotes, since coyotes caught on flat ground are often killed by wolves. But coyotes, of course, are adaptable, and with wolves back, Yellowstone coyotes shifted their territories, moving from open meadows to steep terrain. Flat ground favors the wolf, but in steep terrain, a coyote being chased by a wolf will run downhill, then turn suddenly and run back uphill. The heavier wolf has a harder time stopping and turning around, giving the coyote a chance to escape. Wolves suppress coyotes, and coyotes in turn suppress foxes. So the diminished coyote population led to a rise in foxes and changed the odds of survival for coyote prey like hares and young deer, as well as the small rodents and ground-nesting birds that foxes eat. Changes in the population of those animals affect how much certain roots, buds, seeds, and insects get eaten, which can alter the balance of local plant communities, and so on down the food chain all the way to fungi and microbes. Similarly, after the wolves' reintroduction, their increased predation on elk benefited Yellowstone's grizzly bear population by leading to a significant increase in the growth of berries in the park, which of course is an important food source for bears. Wolf kills are scavenged by a wide variety of animals, including ravens, wolverines, eagles, bears, jays, magpies, and, of course, our coyotes. Before wolf reintroduction, the main cause of death among elk in Yellowstone was deep snow. 
Now, instead of this boom and bust cycle of elk carrying availability as existed before wolves and only when winters were hard, there's a more equal distribution of carrion throughout the year. Which brings us back to the beaver. With the return of the wolf came the return of the beaver. In 2001, there was only a single beaver colony in Yellowstone National Park. By 2015, there were 100. I'll talk about beaver in a future episode, but all you need to know for now is that beavers, like wolves, are a keystone species. Beaver ponds provide habitat for a myriad of other species like moose, otters, mink, wading birds, waterfowl, fish, and amphibians. Beaver activity also helps filter out pollutants, mitigates flooding, and reduces erosion, resulting in an increase in water quality. So think about all of that for a second, and let me sum up. The reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone didn't just impact elk or bison or coyotes. There was a ripple effect that was felt in surprising ways by almost every species in the park. The presence of wolves impacted berry growth. It impacted insects. It increased water quality. Is that something you could have predicted? Not me. But the lesson we need to learn is that when you remove something from an ecosystem, it has impacts sometimes in ways we can't predict. And that's the thought I wanted to leave you with this week. If you want to read more about wolves, I highly recommend the book American Wolf, A True Story of Survival and Obsession in the West by Nate Blakesley. It's a wonderful book that follows a wolf named O6 as she leads her pack and also gets into a lot more detail about the politics that surrounded the reintroduction of wolves. Of Wolves and Men by Barry Lopez is another good book that talks about the ecology of the wolf and gets into a lot of the myths and superstitions about wolves. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to support future episodes, please consider joining our growing number of supporters by becoming a patron. You can do that by heading over to the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. With your first three months of paid support, you get some sweet merch, as the kids say. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission. Don't make me feed you to the wolves.